This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. All right, everyone. I'm here with Robert Gressis. I'm here with Kevin Curry Knight of the Electric Agora, and we are here just to do a kind of a New Year's roundup. Um, I've been now for years publishing these annual New Year musings, and now that we have this wonderful roster of people um, at Electric Agora, I thought, why not do a why not do a, a yearly roundtable with our some of our most regular uh, contributors um, and uh, see what they've been thinking about. Um, um, so we don't need to discuss the, any of the points in my new, new Year musings. I guess what I was kind of hoping was that each of you would sort of offer your own New Year musings, but I'm assuming that some of the topics like COVID were going to overlap. So um, Robert, do you want to, do you want to start or Kevin? Sure, or? I can start. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's start on COVID because that's the most, um, I suppose, ubiquitous phenomenon that everybody in the world is dealing with. And I'll say a couple of things about COVID. Um, one, and we were talking about this earlier, one is that I think a lot of us have seemed to have lost the plot. Like it has become so complicated and there have become so many different takes and, and a couple of different camps that it is really difficult to know what's even going on or how you should behave anymore. And I will also say that like, I have seen people think as, as we were talking about earlier, that this is, you know, uh, this will always be with us in the sense that, you know, masks on airplanes, for instance, will be permanent. That's what I think Dr. Fauci said. And that other people have said that there's literally no safer environment to be in than an airplane. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's just a sort of thing where you can see so many takes on, on so many different little parts that I kind of don't know what to believe anymore. And I also don't even know who's an expert because it affects so many different parts of our lives that it seems to me difficult to have expertise, even if you majored and got a PhD just in COVIDology, right? It's just such a big phenomenon that like it would, it's, I'm not going to say it's as big as philosophy, but it might be as big as contemporary economics, right? Touching as it does on so many different fields. So that's one of the things where I just kind of don't know what to do anymore other than, you know, I just don't think we can keep with strict measures for that much longer because I think people get sick of it. But then on the other hand, I see people who seem to be addicted to the strict measures and it like gives meaning to their life. So it's this weird thing that could perhaps be permanent, doesn't have to be. And last thing I'll say is that I think precisely because it's gotten so complicated, you see two very coarse reactions to it. On the left, you see, you have to, everybody needs to be vaccinated, including two-year-olds. Everybody has to be masked, even when they're outside. Everything should be locked down until this latest wave passes. And on the right, you see like, no one should be vaccinated. The thing isn't even real, or if it is real, it's not a big deal. And it's like, there seems to be so much middle ground <laughs> that, that people seem to not be able to process taking. Like maybe, maybe we should just have vaccines and not these other measures. Maybe that would be something good, right? But that doesn't seem to be a viable option for people to like take as a position. And I don't quite know why, but um, maybe you'll illuminate me. So that's my opening uh, salvo. So th those two fringe positions on, in, the, in my New Year musings, I refer to as the COVID for, forever war posture. That's the, that's the left wing version. And then the what me worry posture, which is the right wing version. 
Um, yeah. And both what? kind of deranged. Kevin, why don't you talk about your thoughts on COVID this year? I, I've just speaking to something Robert just said, and then uh, what you expanded on, Dan, I've been toying with um, what this year should be called. That is the year that just passed 2021. What should we name it? What should its title be? And as philosophers, I'm sure you'll appreciate the idea I came up with. It's the year of the excluded middle. <laughs> That's because really any good. middle position is now hollowed out. That's really um, good. It's just official. It's it's official. I I I'll go into I'll go into this later, but I think you can see it on a whole bunch of things. Either critical race theory is absolute lunacy and there's nothing possibly of value in it or the 1619 project, or it's the only way to tell a truthful history and everything else is dishonest. Um, or it's not even it, being taught. Or it's not being taught is what what's happening. Like it's it's COVID, it's this, it's Donald Trump, who apparently we still talk about in 2021, uh, all sorts of things. So, the, just, so, so it is the year of the excluded middle, COVID included, right? Is so, the, is, but is the middle empty? I mean, what I described is um, 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 I described sort of this like bewildered um, a bewildered, helpless majority in between. Um, um, it, it feels to me more like the middle is populated by a large number of people who probably have a perfectly reasonable attitude towards mitigation versus mm -hmm. um, um, cost, right? Um, but who feel completely helpless, right? I mean, who are almost yeah. like impotent to affect any anything via policy yeah. because policy is being driven by the fringes, right? By the yeah, edge. I mean... Well, so is so is media. And that's and that's the other problem is all of the media that that I see, even the new media, it's not just legacy media. This is also a Substack problem. This is a Patreon problem. So all of this. You see two positions, and I, I, I suspect that the reason is because everyone who's trying to monetize anything, whether it's social media trying to monetize their space or Patreon folks and Substack folks trying to monetize their newsletters, or regular media knows that the new economy seems to be that the best thing to do to get attention is to talk in extremes and absolutes. And that people tend to gravitate, at least people who consume a lot of media, which may be a subset of people, um, really like absolutes and really like extremes. Um, at least that's, that's, that's been what I've seen. Um, it, you know, more and more, I, I subscribe to podcasts on all different sides of, of the thing. I subscribe to some kind of right-wing podcast, libertarian podcast, progressive podcast. And what I notice is that every episode of any given podcast is pretty predictable given the, the narrow framework that that podcast sets up for itself, right? Like, oh, of course they would have that episode. Oh, of course that, of course, blocked and reported would have this episode. Oh, another detransitioner. I wonder what podcast that's on. It's on a right wing podcast. Oh, another transitioner. I wonder who's that. You know. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I've, I've just gotten really, uh, I've gotten really sick of it. Um, I know that Dan has as well, based on his new year's musings. Uh, it's gotten yeah, kind of I sick have of the... too. I have definitely reduced the consumption of podcasts. Pretty much the thing I listen to most is, um, news about professional wrestling because and even that honestly even that is politically inflected oh, although God, they, are you kidding they, me that how could yeah it well be? i'll i'll tell you how it's, it's because so gratuitous it's, 
it just has to do with COVID policies. Oh. And so like, and so like, you know what, they're, they're, the, the, the podcast I listen to is, it's called a figure four or wrestling observer podcast. And they have two hosts, Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez. And Dave Meltzer will occasionally start to get on a jag about COVID and how stupid one state's policy is or whatever. And then Brian will sort of like say, okay, okay, we don't need to talk about politics right now. Let's get back to wrestling. And so it's, it's, it's not very politically inflected, but that's mainly because of Brian Alvarez, who just, I think at least wrestling is still an area where being political doesn't like increase your audience. <laughs> it like some people just want to listen to wrestling in a wrestling podcast, weird as that is. And yeah. so when you start talking about politics that they're like, you know, maybe, maybe it offends them, but maybe it's just like, I'm, I don't find this interesting. That's why I'm listening to a wrestling podcast. So I just, I just don't like listening to like takes because I also feel like basically everything is about either diversity or the culture war. And that's just like everything that anybody ever talks about nowadays. I mean, you can find podcasts that don't, but even not doing it is now seen as such a stance that people, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe it's not confirmation bias, but um, it feels like the podcasts I used to listen to that I just sort of stopped because I got bored by them. Um, but I do have a question about COVID because here's my stance, you know, and I, and I, I firmly confess to um, kind of no longer quote following the science just because the science got too complicated for me to follow. Um, my, my, my position is basically like, um, if you're vaccinated, you're by and large, you're not in grave danger. Um, if you're unvaccinated, you may be in grave danger depending on your age and your underlying conditions. But if you're young enough, even then you're not in serious danger. Like why do people who, who don't want to get vaccinated, to, to what extent should they have to get vaccinated? Like what danger do they pose to the vaccinated? Is it just filling up the hospitals or is it like the breakthrough infections that people are worried about? Because even the breakthrough infections, I get the sense they don't usually cause death or serious hospitalization. And when I say don't usually, I mean almost never. So is it just that like people should be forced to get vaccinated because there's no good reason not to or or what? Like, because personally, when, when I find that somebody's not vaccinated, it doesn't bother me very much. I'm just like, okay, that seems silly to me, but you know, you do you. I'm not worried about you. Do you feel that way about the children your son plays with, whether they've been vaccinated for polio, measles, smallpox, et cetera? Because I would not allow children who were not vaccinated near my kid when I was, and I would not send her to a school where unvaccinated children would be allowed to go. So do you feel the so, same way about that or just about the COVID vaccine? Just about the COVID vaccine, because Why? I get the sense that those drugs, those vaccines are different and those diseases are different. I could Why? be wrong, but- Why? From what I understand- I mean, um, given polio, the death toll of COVID, why would you say that? Well, because I get the sense that children are way, way, way less endangered by COVID than they are by polio or by mumps, measles, rubella. Um, so for instance, I, I remember reading a study by, or yeah, it was a study by Donald Zweig of The Atlantic that said that uh, children between the ages of five and 17 are, who are unvaccinated are a thousand times safer than vaccinated 29 year olds. And yeah, so I, it's like, yeah. I should just chime in just to say that I've seen the same sorts of things. I've seen nothing that contradicts this. And even when I've been talking to people who feel differently about this, the best arguments they muster are, well, we don't exactly know how it affects kids because they're kids. We don't know what the long-term effects are. It's like, so, so even then those people aren't saying 
children will be mortally affected or or just seriously affected at any large rate even they admit I should that. say my 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 7-year-old son is vaccinated for what it's worth I mean I'm not some people are worried about vaccinations in children I'm not really worried about vaccinations in children either although I have heard there's cases of myocarditis in like boys between the ages of 18 and 29 or something like that uh, but I don't know how much likelier they are to get myocarditis from the vaccine than they are from covid I've heard that they're likelier to get it from COVID than they are from the vaccine. And I get the sense that even the myocarditis, the risk isn't very high. So I'm like, I'm not worried about COVID for kids. I'm, I, I, think, I think COVID for adults, for like elderly people is very dangerous. But like if they're vaccinated. What about all the adults that the kids interact with to, and to whom they're carrying this stuff? Yeah, but if those adults are vaccinated, okay. I don't know how dangerous it is. If the adults are unvaccinated, that's a different thing. But again, it's sort of up to the adults whether or not they want to get vaccinated. And if they don't, I think it's a dumb decision. But on the other hand, um, I don't know that it's it's dangerous enough to most adults to, I mean, quote, force them to, to vaccinate. What do you think? So I, I don't know. My view of this is very uncomplicated. Um, I think that something with this death toll plus airborne equals mandatory vaccination. I don't even think that you really need any more details than that. Um, um, indeed, I think that not to is borderline mad um, and makes no sense given the way we behaved for the last hundred years. Um, um, young children have relatives um, and they often have old ones um, who even if they are vaccinated, may very easily be killed by COVID. Um, and in many cases cannot be vaccinated as in the case of my father um, because they're too frail to be vaccinated. Um, this to me is just a basic matter of normal, ordinary public health. I don't know how this turned into this weird. In my view, the reason that this all happened is because of absence and abdication of leadership. Um, we just didn't have these conversations uh, in previous eras because leaders exercised their authority and people were subjected to that authority. And you just that was just the way it was. I mean, if you were going to send your kid to school, they got vaccinated. If you didn't vaccinate them, then you could go live on a mountain somewhere, but you could not mix with the rest of the population. So my view is federal man mandatory vaccination for anyone who is capable, who is, uh, you know, eligible for it obviously there are going to be exceptions and and proof of vaccination must should be required in all indoor venues um and in my is view that, that should be non non-controversial is that his is that history correct though i don't know enough yes. to say that it's not correct but i find it implausible to think that we were more nationalistically inclined and governmentally inclined towards those that sorts of those sorts of course of measures in let's say I, th I assume you're talking about the early 1900s than we are in 2021. I'm talking about the difference between the way that we managed and reacted to required vaccinations when I was a kid in the 1960s versus how we're dealing with it now. And what did the um, what did the leadership do? I assume by leadership, are you talking about like at the state level? At but the, the people who run all the institutions that one engages with in one's life and which 
impose various requirements and rules and regulations upon those institutions and the participation in them. Um, this simply was part of what being a part of the society involved. Um, I don't recall any discussion. I just also find it very odd that in nowhere else in people's lives do they become amateur scientists, but now all of a sudden they do, right? I mean, it's like, it's like nobody interrogates, nobody, nobody when their plumber tells them to do something goes and spends the next four months looking up on, on, on Google whether or not this is really good advice and whether or not the person is really an expert. In other words, I, I disagree that, in so many I, ways. I, but I, yeah, I think that we have basically institutionalized the abdication of authority and the result is that people are no longer respecting it. And um, um, I think that's probably our biggest problem now is abdication of, 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 uh, of institutional authority. I think it's the reason for our problems in media that we're talking about. I think it's reasons for our social disintegration. Um, you, you need leadership that's willing to tell people no, to tell people they have to do things and to be willing to lose the next election after having told people to do things and making them do them. And, um, you know, I just don't think we would behaving, behave, be behaving like this if someone like Eisenhower was president. And putting so let, let, through. let me say a couple of things. Yeah, First, please, my, my watch said my stress level is high. So it said I should take a few minutes to breathe, which I think is interesting. And actually is kind of related because there's all these devices in our lives now that actually probably do play a role in this. But second of all, I do think people are amateur scientists mm -hmm. in their lives when it comes to exercise and diet. Um, people are constantly looking up stuff, are constantly challenging stuff. I see a lot of people taking homeopathy seriously. A lot of people investigating diet pills and uh, vitamin pills and stuff like that. This is, you know, I think of that piece, the fact that the internet makes research so much easier is part of the reason why people are now more- Research. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, but, but Looking things up on random sites about things you know nothing about is not research but it feels like research, mm. right? And so people get the sense that they have, you know, acquired mastery or, you know, it's an illusory sense, but it's a sense anyway, because most people, the kind of stuff they have real mastery in is often different from this kind of like academic mastery, which is like a really different sort of feeling than being like a master plumber or like manager or whatever. But the other thing, there's this book called Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry, which has gotten a lot of attention. And I think part of it is that like, we just know, so much more about our elites than we used to because we see how they comport themselves on Twitter. We see all these like classified documents. We see some of the, the dumb decisions they've made. We, we have all these clips now showing what they said in the past to what they say now. Yeah, but that's consistent like, with what I've said about the collapse of authority, right? I mean, that's, yeah, one, of the, that's saying, one of the reasons for it, right? Right, right. But what I'm saying is that I don't think it's so much a personnel matter like if we did have Eisenhower, the same thing might just happen to Eisenhower as happened to anybody oh, where he'd just be pushed into a corner because we'd find out that like he's got irritable bowel syndrome or something. And so people would lose respect for him. I, I don't know what where was wrong we find that, Or we'd find the picture of him being unmasked at the party when he, right. Right, like we did, what wasn't it, California's governor and some other Newsom, folks? We, yeah, Gavin yeah. Newsom. It's yeah. also what just is, happened with Boris Johnson in the UK. It's like a huge scandal about it. I, mean, I think it happened with AOC. Yeah. The only thing that I would add I, I think I agree with what Robert just said. The only thing that I would add is that I don't think we're going to get that sort of authority back because we have things like the internet. Like I, I, I'm, I'm more and more fond of saying, if you want to undo the effects of the internet on authority, 
there's China and there's one state. Those are the two options. Oh, I agree. One state? You would have to look like one of those two places. Yeah, I agree. What's, what's one state? George Orwell, man. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I just, I just, no, look, I agree with that, Kevin. I, what I'm describing is not a hope, right? <laughs> but I think, but I do think that that is a condition for not being a third rate country. I do. So but do you I, think, cause I, I've been reading people lately who have been saying we need to crack down a lot more on the internet and like uh, impose a certain degree of homogeneity on it. I don't know that that would be good, but they do seem to look explicitly to, like to China as a model. And, um, I don't know. I feel like more and more people, especially people in elite positions whose authority is being challenged, are going to look at China longingly. I could be wrong. I could just be very paranoid. You know, I don't know. To me, picking something like China is just to is just to straw man the issue. Right. I mean, I can point to countries that are not China. Okay. that are far better managed. Okay. I just watched watched an hour long documentary about Norway. Right. Okay. And let me let me tell you how they handled covid. And I think this is this is what I would have done. Right. I think this 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 to me is what a sane country does. Right. With something like this. Um, so this guy wants to go to Norway. He's doing a travel log, et cetera. Well, go, go to Norway. I don't care who the fuck you are. You you have to quarantine the first week before you before you even step out. OK, you have to quarantine and you have to be tested. And um, once that's you're cleared. You then go into the country where there is universal mandatory vaccination and life is pretty much normal. Nobody's masked. Everybody's doing their normal business and getting to it, getting on to it. If we should have done that, the minute that the numbers hit past half a million dead, we should, we needed to do that. And now look, it's a lot easier to do in Norway. It's a homogenous country. There's like four people in the whole country. My point, my point just is, is that the idea that somehow the model of serious, grown-up, mature leadership is China? I don't agree. I just don't. Well, I chose China because they have a billion four hundred million people, right? And they're they're geographically really vast, and um, and of course they are pretty homogeneous, right? They're eighty percent Han Chinese, and um, and they've been they have been doing a very good job, from what we can tell. You know, we always have to wonder about Chinese statistics, but from what we can tell, they seem to have done a good job of keeping COVID cases low. They haven't done a very good job of making an effective vaccine, though. Uh, America seems to have done the best job of making effective vaccines, which is something to be said as well. But like, look, if you ask me if I had to choose between lockdowns, masks, etc., or just mandatory universal vaccine, that to me is clearly the best policy because I know vaccines work. Vaccines are way less intrusive than masks. Masks maybe impede children's development of empathy and understanding how people talk. Vaccines don't. I have a colleague, um, by the way, who's deaf. Um, oh and it is, I, can't even I, I, haven't, I, I haven't asked her about it, but every time I see her, I think about what is life like for a deaf person when everyone on this campus oh is literally God. required to wear a mask and her main method of communicating with people is reading lips. And well, what, she'd have what, to get an interpreter, I guess, right? Yeah, um, everywhere, she doesn't have an interpreter her. everywhere she goes, right? Yeah. So, well, a lot of interpreters, uh, a lot of deaf people. Yeah, well, CSUN <laughs> has, I think, more deaf students than any other university that's not specifically uh, for the deaf. Uh, so, like, I, I, I should ask people around here how, 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 how they've dealt with yeah, this issue. Yeah, what that's like. We don't have enough. Yeah, I, I should ask because there's like 
200 deaf students at CSUN. And so, yeah. I think, I think for, I think, I think for me, um, the whole COVID thing has been really illuminating because I have been almost taking a, 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 almost like a Peronian skeptical position towards COVID science and proclamations about what to do with COVID. And I see around me people who are confident that, that here's what we should do. Here's what the science says. And I mean, any grown-up understanding of science knows that for, science doesn't lead to consensus, especially, you know, so early on in studying a new thing. It just, it doesn't. It's so rare that it would. So on one hand, you have conservatives who are very skeptical of whatever the science says, as long as it, you know, tramples on their liberties. And they're saying, as evidence will look, you know, the science said this two weeks ago, and the science is saying this now. And it's like, yeah, that's the way science works. Like, didn't, didn't you learn that? in in school <laughs> science doesn't it's not like it just makes up its mind after there's a study going on they, they didn't science, learn that in school right? and, science doesn't make policy judgments right because there's still an evaluative dimension right yeah that the yeah. science doesn't tell you anything about how much risk are you willing to endure right. what is the cost right. of the mitigation and what are, is it worth it those are not questions that scientists can tell you all they can right. tell you is what's what something is going to do to you how statistically better off you are with the with with being vaccinated and so on and so forth but it's not gonna it's not gonna tell you what you should do yeah and even then and even then my point is is often that even then it sometimes doesn't even do that very well because different science will get different results based on the different samples they use based on the different methodologies and to robert's point earlier like unless you are a professional scientist which i don't pretend to be it's almost impossible to sift through that data, but everyone I talk to, it, I mean, present company excluded, but everyone I talk to seems very confident that they know what vaccines do and don't do, that they know what masks do and don't do, that they know what the proper lockdown or et cetera policy should have been, that they know that, that their version of liberty is, is inviolable and not worth trading off for anything else. And I just feel like the skeptic in a sea of, of believers well, I will say I am a believer to this extent. I'm very, I'm not a professional scientist to the best of my knowledge, but I'm very confident that vaccines do significantly reduce the risk of death or hospitalization. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. lots yeah. of studies where that do seem yes. to indicate that the case rates fall dramatically. Now, does it do it better than natural immunity? I don't know. I mean, I, most of the people I've seen say that it does, but if somebody, I wouldn't be shocked if it does it no better than or, or slightly worse than, but like whatever, like that, that they work by and large and that natural immunity is pretty, you know, better than nothing. That yeah. Those seem to me to be pretty much objects of consensus among scientists. But, you know, again, I don't know the, the field. I will say the one, the, like when you say that, Dan, that we should have a vac- mandatory vaccines, like, do you mean the kind of stuff we've been doing where we tell businesses, look, you have to have your employees be vaccinated. And we tell businesses if, in order to allow people to go in here they have to show you their their vaccination status yes. or do you mean something more intrusive than that like going no. to people's houses no. okay no okay no. because yeah i mean um, i want to do it the way we do it with childhood vaccinations you want your kid to go to school and play with other children then he's going to have to be vaccinated otherwise you'll have to homeschool him uh-huh yeah like i mean to me and he won't we, be able we, to go to the Knicks game either and he won't be able to go to da 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 da, da and da 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 da, da because you're right to do X ends to where your fist touches my nose and right. to have you walk around 
spreading plague to everyone is not a right that you have. But I you mean, just, do, you you think, do you think do you think people have the right to go outside with a cold? Yes, cold. Okay. The cold didn't kill. The cold didn't kill close to a million people in the last two years. Flu. I mean, the reason I bring up cold and flu is just that I think. Yeah, I mean, look back in the days when when the Spanish when, when you had the Spanish flu or the Hong Kong flu, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, like, I think it just a lot of it depends on on what level of risk counts as like your fist hitting my face, right? Like when we're vaccinated and when we have the Omicron strain, which from, I'm not a professional scientist, but from what I can tell seems significantly less dangerous than the Delta strain. Well, and when we have this new pill, right? The Pluoxamine or whatever it's called from Pfizer. And we have a new pill from Merck that when you do get it, we can give you these pills and you know dramatically reduce your symptoms. That I think changes the game also. That changes the yeah. game. Once there, I think there, are, there are normal treatments, you yeah. know, you might be able to back down off of this, right? But, but, I, I, given the state of things now, there should have been a mandate. I think that, like, given how much pushback there is in mandates, and given how, like, so one one thing that matters a lot to me is if we had just recommended vaccines a lot without mandating, would that have increased uptake? I don't know. Like, I've, I actually have seen a study that says it would have, but, you know, these social science studies are so hard to tell because it's like counterfactuals and it's based on what people claim they do and how alienated they are. It's very easy for people to say, I'll never take the vaccine. And then, you know, you say you can't go to the grocery store and then they all take the vaccine. Right. But like that also breeds resentment. And I think when you have experts constantly, constantly changing their tune, right, they say masks don't work, then they say masks work. They say, you know, we need 60% to get it to read herd immunity. Then they say, well, I only said that because I think if I said the real thing, people would have freaked out. And they tell you they lie to you to manipulate your behavior. Like these kinds of like things make a vaccine mandate just the kind of thing that creates more, more like civil resistance. And look, if it were, if so it were you literally, may Bupan, to, you may just have to lose the next election. Well, yeah, but then what I mean, come on, like, come on, Robert. Listen, look, think about this. I, I think, you I think do you think Eisenhower, <laughs> do you think Eisenhower focus group the South to find out how they would feel about it when he sent federal troops to segregate their schools? No, he knew they would hate it. He knew it would be unpopular, but it had to be done. Why? Because this is a civilized country. In other words, you're diving way too deep. These these things used to be understood at a far earlier stage of depth you, you are just things that one does when one yeah. runs a modern civilized country right I, I just think that 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 segregation was a greater evil than people not taking covid when we have a vaccine a million dead in two years is pretty challenging man yeah but how much of that was due to people uh before how many of that was before the vaccine was widely available i think it's not a, well is it a million dead i don't know last i figured i saw it was 800 and something thousand but regardless i think it was 500,000 were due were happened before the vaccine was widely available i could be wrong i don't um, know i don't know yeah and you know and again how much of this is due to like us not having tests available how much is this due to like um the fda saying you're not allowed to make private tests but yeah look it's serious for sure but um, I don't know, like, I just, I'm not, as, I'm not as confident as you that this is the kind of thing where you should be willing to foment that much public resentment. But again, it might be the sort of thing where the resentment would have happened no matter what. Something like half the people who won't get vaccinated say they won't take the pill either, which is like, 
I don't even get it anymore. Yeah. Like, like what, what are you worried about? But I guess they're, worried about gonna the li- just, they're, they're going to own the libs. They're going to own the libs. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> even if it means killing myself, I'm going to own the, li- I mean, this is the level of stupid you're talking about, right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I mean, the way I, I tend to put it is if I can tell your rough politics by your stance on the COVID vaccine, there's something wrong because those two should not have anything to do with one another. There's no logical, progression there but it does um and i guess again this is where i this year has been me feeling like the the newly sober person in a world full of drunk people because i i don't have a firm stance here i can see the 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 wisdom or the logic or the sense in both of these positions so when people talk about kind of but my liberty i i should have the liberty not to you know have the vaccine I guess my tendency is to, it, it may sound like a cop-out, I don't think it is, is what liberty are you talking about? Because liberty is pretty multifaceted and it's not always coherent internally. If you mean the liberty not to take a vaccine, then you might forego the liberty to be able to walk safely outside, which is kind of a valid idea of liberty and and vice versa. If you uh, want the the liberty to go outside and do the things you want to do with peace of mind, you might have to trade off the liberty to bodily autonomy that you want. Like there are times when these two things conflict with each other. And I don't see a lot of people willing to think that way. We're thinking in absolutes. And I, I don't, um, I've, I've moved away from that. I, I just, I don't think, you know, the, the COVID I find myself disagreeing with you a bit. There. Like, I feel uncomfortable to talk about my liberty to walk down a safe street. I'm willing to say my security, right? Like I, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being naive here, but I just feel like that's not how I would use liberty. Like, for instance, yeah. I don't feel like my liberty is, is threatened by the fact that I'm going to die of old age at some point, right? Like, yeah, that's going to happen. And that sucks. But like, I don't feel like it curtails my freedom. But but if um, someone but if someone was completely at liberty to shoot you in the head, would you talk about your security not to be shot in the head, or would you talk about your liberty to be free of that? Uh, I guess I would say my right not to be shot in the head. But uh, the your liberty. right to security or your right to liberty? Hmm. See, I don't, I don't think, think liberty and security are like if you talk about property rights, you're talking about your security in a possession. I don't think that liberty and security are that. Um, no, you can keep on talking. My son's asking me a question. I'm listening yeah, to you. Yeah. I'm listening to both of you because I can quote multitask. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, that's why I, I think I feel more and more this year, this past year, like the, the person who's sober in a room full of drunk people. Um, well, look, I, I, I don't like to me, security is really important. <laughs> so like, if you want to say that sometimes you have to trade off liberty for security, I'm fine with that. I just may, I, again, it's just the way but you're right. Like, I'll think about this, this gun to the head thing. I don't, I actually don't have a, a feeling one way or the other. If you say your liberty not to be shot in the head, that doesn't sound right to me. If you say your security not to be shot in the head, that also doesn't sound right to me either. So, they don't yeah, say so it, could be, it could be too. just be a semantic issue. It could just, yeah, be, yeah. Really I don't, like, on the... It's probably me being persnickety. Like I just want liberty to have a kind of single meaning just so that it's easier to talk about things. And that, and that trade-offs are fine. So, right? I, so, yeah. yeah. So the way, so the way I would frame it then going back to Dan's example of, was it Norway that you were talking about? Dan? So, right. So in some sense, obviously they gave up a certain Liberty because there was a mandate for vaccination. 
On the other hand, they were amazingly more free as a result of that because they could go about their business without masks, et cetera, which is another thing conservatives would happen to care about. No, right? yeah, that's so, the thing. Yeah, so it's I, like, which, I, are, which would you sacrifice for the other? Because we chose oh, masks. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a no brainer. <laughs> I, I don't want to wear a mask. Like masks, like I said to Dan earlier, they're just far more intrusive. Plus to me, like I get, I get like the feeling that masks are an imposition on your liberty in a way that like the vaccine, because like, again, unless you're immunocompromised, I just don't see any good reason not to get the vaccine. Whereas I see lots of good reasons not to wear masks because I've been teaching in masks, right? And I can't be understood as easily. My nose gets runny. I get lightheaded. I get hot and sweaty. My, my performance goes markedly down, noticeably down. Everybody I've talked to on campus who taught on masks said they felt like it was their worst year of teaching ever. So like, that one, and, and you know, especially when they don't work nearly as well as the vaccine, right? Like that to me feels much more like a stupid gesture that really doesn't serve very much of a purpose. I don't know how effective masks are. I've heard varying figures. Come on, and think, about, think about all those places where this is causing such conflict, right? I mean, people getting into fistfights on airplanes. I mean, this is all because of masking. And if you had a nationwide vaccination mandate, you wouldn't have to have any of it, right? Yeah, no, I, I like I said, if I had to pick one, I'd pick the nationwide vaccine mandate. No brainer to me. Plus, you wouldn't have to fill out the forms every day. Is my child sick or not? Right. But anyway, you know, what Kevin described, you know, they traded a little liberty in, in terms of being made to take a vaccination in return for a gigantic amount of liberty and being able to lead their lives like normal. This used to be the kind of thinking that any 14 year old could do. Right and figure these sorts of things out. I mean, it's shocking to me that we have an entire country full of adults that seem incapable, either incapable of this sort of very rudimentary uh, cost-benefit thinking, or are so emotionally deranged that they would rather hurt everyone just to own the libs, right? I mean, I mean, I don't know what to do with a person like that. I don't know I mean, if we should, they well. should, they should be locked up, people like that. What are you going to, I mean, the, the, all they're going to do is destroy your is destroy where you live. Right? I'm not sure about this, but it sounds like we're talking as if and assuming that the people who are rejecting the vaccine are doing so because they're maybe kind of pro-Trump conservative types. And I've heard several times, I've never seen the figure that was cited, but I've heard from several sources and several ideo ideological areas that the primary, the, the, the number one group of people who have not gotten the vaccine have been people of color, primarily African-Americans. We'd have to look that up. And I've it doesn't go it into up. why I've they don't have the vaccine, but part of it could be you have this history of people whom the government has made mandates towards about things that you will do with your body that hasn't been very kind. So you develop a culture of distrust at those mandates. I mean, I think people choose not to be vaccinated for a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, several uh, professional athletes have chosen not to be vaccinated. And when Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, did it, everyone started to have these assumptions about he must be some sort of conspiracy theorist guy. And it turns out he's just a professional athlete that's really particular about what he puts in his body. And he's not the only one. Uh, there are a lot of NFL players who've decided not to get the vaccine. So I just want to make a caveat that we might get away from the idea that you're doing it to own the libs. I'm sure there, some there people are, are demographic maps that show this. It's really not controversial. I mean, there are hot spots of low vaccination in inner city 
minority neighborhoods for reasons like the ones you suggest, right? Distrust, et cetera. Although I find all of that very difficult to make much sense out of. I mean, every time I watch a Jew driving around in a Mercedes, you know, I think to myself, like, you know, you know, how much do these histories really affect an individual in terms of like the day decisions they make? I guess I kind of think half that's kind of bullshit. Um, um, I don't really buy it. Um, um, but whatever, it doesn't matter. You look at there, they have done geography maps of the country of vaccination rates, and it very clearly skews politically. Mm, mm, mm. It's really not disputable. Even with, yes, there are spots in the most blue areas where you have low vaccination, but they're always minority and immigrant neighborhoods, right? Where the explanation is, like you said, going to be a different one, right? But it's not, it's really not easy to contest the idea that the main op- political opposition to mag- vaccination in this country has been from the right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I I think like owning the libs is one way of putting it. I think it's it's a combination of I don't trust these people. They keep on changing their minds. They keep on like like take the for instance the uh, the George Floyd protests, right? Oh, and God. what the public health experts said, right? Right. And it, and then people got the sense after that. I mean, they probably already had the sense that this was like political and so they were just looking for an excuse to to justify it but they found a pretty good one where where like all of a sudden racism is such a public health crisis that you are like obligated from a public right, it's health worth point getting of view COVID. to go to the protests it's worth getting right. covid to battle racism i mean but then again well, it's actually that, yeah. obligatory like from a public health point of view the thing you ought to do for public health is go to those protests which is i believe what the letter of 1200 public health experts said now, um, that is the kind of stuff that like, again, yeah. helps to make them hate them and not trust them. And you could say it's owning the libs. I think it's just like, yeah, that, that is it. And they like it when liberals get mad. And you know, to be honest, I was just talking with my mom about this this morning. To some degree, I'm not entirely sure why progressives are mad at conservatives for not getting vaccinated. And I'll tell you why. And this is, I have heard a progressive. They should be I glad know. that they're going to die. Is that what it is? I, yeah, I've heard him say that. I, I know a progressive who said he's happy that so many Trump voters died because now we're, you know, the world will be a better place. That's 2021 thing, in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, that's, 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 the, that's the attitude of 2021 in a nutshell. And that's well, I'm not I'm saying, glad they will die. And you don't have a country then, right? Yeah, well, I'm not saying he's representative, although I wouldn't be shocked if he was. But um, I'm not saying he is. But I'm just saying that, like, um, I think I do kind of wonder, is it is it like from the progressive point of view, is it just that they're worried about the hospitals being overflowed? That's why they want all these red state people to do it, because the red state people think it's all about power. I hear them say that all the time. This is just a power play. They just want us to bend the knee and do what they want. And that's why we're not going to do it. Right. We're going to show we're like and that you could call that owning the libs if you want. I'm going to kill my grandmother just to show you. Right. Yeah, to show you that I won't do that. Is that is that is that a normal uh, give me liberty or give me what? Is that a normal mental state for a person? I, I, you know, you're going to not like my answer. I don't know. Let let me give you an example. I'm I wonder in places where people feel like they're disenfranchised if they do stuff like this regularly. Right. Like just as an act of rebellion when they feel like they don't have much power. So is it normal? I mean. I think, I think it's idiotic, right? I think it's like destructive idiot. I don't know why they do it. 
and maybe maybe the feeling that they're disenfranchised is itself idiotic. Um, but I think a lot of them do feel that way. And I think this is how people kind of react when they feel like they don't have power, like they do right. anything they can. You're so, right. So I don't know if that's normal, but it, it might be deranged, but it might be a normal kind of derangement. <laughs> um, Listen, but I anyway. was shocked at people. I was shocked at people throwing parties when when Rush Limbaugh died. Look, I fucking hate Rush Limbaugh. But this is just something this is something I just don't understand. Yeah, uh, this is you know, somebody's I, uncle. It's somebody's cousin. It's somebody's, you know what I mean? There are people that care about this person. I mean, listen, the guy who was my worst persecutor in my department, mm-hmm. I had to spend something like $10,000 on lawyers to keep my job because of this guy. He didn't throw a party when he died. I don't know. I find this a very, very disturbing. Am I, Robert, do you think I'm nuts? No, I, I, Want your you know, I, to die? yeah, I, I, I tell you, I, I'm weird. Like, even when they executed Saddam Hussein, <laughs> I did not awful. feel like joy. It's awful to see, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I was like sad and like, you know, but it's sort of like, I, I don't know, I take no pleasure in it, even when somebody has, you know, quite obviously killed at least about 200,000 people and tried to exterminate a whole people. Like, you know, would I have felt that way about Hitler? I don't know how it was so long ago, but like, you know, I, I'm the not right saying... thing to do, but not something that makes you cheerful and want to throw a party. Like, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think, I think, I think if somebody like, if somebody like did something terrible to my family and then that person died, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to leave it unspecified what terrible thing, but think of the worst thing you can imagine. I can imagine being happy in that case. Cause I have been so deeply personally wronged, but when it's like a political adversary, I don't know. You you just haven't been that personally wronged, and the fact that you're celebrating like you have been leads me to think you're taking politics a bit too personally. And and I'm not saying that when when you take politics too personally that that you're not affected. It's more like if you take it that personally, you've let yourself get in too deep, <laughs> and and getting to the point where you're happy over the deaths of whoever Harry Reid. Let's say I guess he just died recently. I don't know if people threw parties about him or not. I'm sure they did, but just like. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's healthy. I, I, I think it's fairly normal, but I don't think it's healthy either. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if it's always been like that. Um, it, it, maybe it always has. We just never saw it. I don't know. It's interesting because um, I teach a class called Intro to Diversity um, about all the kind of you know, diversity areas that, that colleges of ed care about. And one of the things we talked about in the class, kind of an unexpected theme was how the internet and social media makes it so even harder to think about these things and talk about these things in any honest way. Like people feel like they have to say certain things regardless of whatever tribe they feel like they have to be a part of. So I did some research on some of this um, and particularly like why it was that when we came out with all these internet and social media things, the buzz was this is gonna make us all more tolerant and open because we were regularly exposed to these differences and and how it seems to at least the research that exists suggests that it's done the opposite right it's it's made us less likely to be willing to to attribute anything but bad motive to people we disagree with and some of it seems to have to do with the incentive structures in terms of the monetization of how these things work right so social media sites know that engagement is their their um their value added 
Um, so to increase engagement, they don't really care whether that's positive engagement or negative engagement. It turns out negative engagement is a lot easier to induce. It's just, it's cheaper, it's easier to induce. It's people um, are much more engaged by fear and anger than they are by happiness, right? So what you do um, is you, you bombard people with images of the people that you like saying great things and doing great things, but you also bombard people with the images of people you don't like doing horrible things that just confirm your stereotype. Oh, they're the worst. See, conservatives are the worst. See, progressives are the worst. And then what happens is you get kind of gradually pulled apart. Um, one of the things that was the most disturbing that I, they found was uh, this kind of theory that Jaron Lanier has. He's a kind of a web 2.0 guy who became very disaffected with web 2.0. He helped He's develop virtual trends, reality. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said like, look, these sites make money when they predict you well. The more they can predict your behavior and what will lead to engagement, the more they stand to, to gain. And he said, there's two ways to do that, basically. The first way is to make the algorithms more sophisticated so that they can better predict you. And that way they do that sometimes. But another way to do it is to make the algorithms nudge you to become more like the algorithm, right? The more predictable you become, the more they can engage you, not because the algorithm got better, but because you became more like the algorithm. So, and the reason I bring all this up is, is the message to the class was like, look, the reason this drives hate so much, and it doesn't only drive hate, but the reason it's so good at driving hate is, is both of these. It's because you are becoming part, you are becoming more like the algorithm because you're seeing only examples that confirm your position. So if you think conservatives are awful, and you think they're fascists, that's what you're going to see repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. If you think that um, America is irredeemably racist and that there's racist incidents all over the place, you are going to repeatedly see that. Yeah. And that not only has effect on you believing more strongly, but it has effect an effect on how you see your opposition. Do you know that I routinely purge all the things, all my following lists of things that are too much on my side too much of the time. Oh, In other words, yeah, like, yeah. like I've just completely stopped following people because it's like, all right, this is now just an act. This is a yes man corner, right? This is like a, 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 and, and I do that like every few months in a sense to try to keep confounding the algorithm, right? Um, stuff gets recommended to me. I say, do not recommend, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I try to keep, yeah. I try Good to policy. keep, my landscape consistent with my own position, which is kind of an in, in, in the middle position. I mean, I'm about as milk toasty uh, in terms of boring po politically um, as you could be. I mean, what's more boring than an Eisenhower liberal, right? I mean, I mean, that's the most boring thing in the world. And, and, um, but, but, but I can see the platforms trying to radicalize me. Yeah. Right. Here, here's a question, though. Go ahead. Go ahead. About about your um, curation of your your list, what happens when you 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 um, are listening are, are following somebody you disagree with, and you begin to find what they're saying more and more ridiculous? Do you stop following them? Because like the worry is that on the one hand, if the only people you see who disagree with you are ridiculous, it's just going to make you more contemptuous of them, and that's not good. But on the other hand, maybe you feel like, well, these are precisely the kind of people I need to read because. Maybe if I'm finding them ridiculous, there's some problem I have, and I need to figure out why somebody who seems smart in other ways would believe these ridiculous things. Like, how do you how do you deal with that issue? This is a question I have. 
So I for get, myself. So what happens is, is that whenever, so, so, you know, let me take sort of the most, the most easy example, right? So I did a lot of stuff publicly that was on the gender critical side of the trans debate, right? So then I notice in YouTube and on Twitter, I'm being fed more and more recommendations. Mm. Here's another from, detransitioner story that you from should the see. More and right? more fringes, the, the, by which I mean the most pure of that sort of thing. And when they start making those recommendations, and I see that they're recommending the pure in a, in a purity direction, I immediately I start putting in do not recommend orders now in terms of the opposite side the people i disagree with my general rule is i don't do crazy so i try to seek out what strike me as the smartest most reasonable well thought through people on the other side of it mm-hmm. and there are enough i mean it seems to me yeah. that one can follow them and find out what the hell is going on. I also have done something else, and then I'll stop because I'm sure both of you want to talk about this since this is a, a hugely important topic, actually, if you think about it, because it goes directly to not only where are you getting your information, but how are you being conditioned, right? Um, I've done something else, Robert, and I wonder if you've ever tried this. There are people just on Twitter whom I just really like. I like them personally. And I, we, we have things in common that are completely off the reservation of politics. So like, there's a guy I'm thinking of who is a super leftist. He's probably a Marxist. He teaches like cultural studies. He, he, you know, everything he posts is super woke and everything, but he's also a punk rocker. He's got a lovely young boy, a lovely young child that was just born that he posts about. And I have decided I am following this man. I'm going to engage with him on the things that that we could be friends about. I am not even going to respond or comment on any of the stuff he posts. I mean, he posts the most virulent anti-Israel stuff constantly. I deliberately do not comment on it. So as not to get in fights with him, because this guy is my friend. Now, I don't know if you've done that, Robert, but that's something I'm now doing explicitly on social media. I don't have to do it in my normal life because my friends come naturally. But in social media, I've been doing that deliberately. Yeah. So back when I was on Facebook, one of the things that happened is that I would I had people who I liked who were my friends and they would say stuff that I found just not a not not a thing I could respect. And it lowered my impression of them. And I didn't engage but I just knew they believed it. (laughs) And like knowing they believed it was like, it just made it, I would always think of that, (laughs) not always, but often think of that when I saw them. And I realized, look, you're a different person when you're on Facebook than when you're face-to-face and stuff like that. But I just wanted to not even see that part. Do you feel that way in your life, personal life? Yeah, I definitely feel as though people are very compartmentalized when it comes to like politics or religion or whatever. And so if they have views that I find like, like really obnoxious, I'm happy to discuss it with them, depending on the manner in which they discuss it. 
Like if they if it tends to lead to like a heated argument, then I just don't discuss it. But if, right, if they're but, willing but it to cause have- you to lose respect for them to where it damages your relationship in a sense, what you just said before, but I mm. know that they think that. And so it lowers my the reason I'm asking is because you've just described my wife. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, does it does it affect the relationship? I'd say it does affect the relationship somewhat because it kind of makes me feel more hampered about how I can relate to them. Like there's like do not go areas. And so it makes it less pleasant than if I could just talk about anything and be totally mm -hmm. free. So I don't feel as free around them as I would around other people who have a different style of discourse, right? To me, the main thing is the style of discourse much more than the content of the discourse. Like if there was, if there was, I could be wrong about this, but if there was somebody who's like a Holocaust denier or like a, an unrepentant Stalinist, right? As long as they talk a certain way and were the kinds of people who were like, who seem to be responsive to evidence, I feel like that to me is easier to talk to than somebody who like agrees with me on 95% of stuff, but like on this 5% just loses their shit. And like is constantly, yeah, I said the S word Nico, and is constantly um, like, you know, if I, I find it, you know, finds it, I just find it really difficult. And there it's like much more about manners than about content. But, but you know, obviously there's a point at which what you're saying is so reprehensible that it's kind of itself a matter of manners. Is it the same thing with tastes? If people like, if people close to you like stuff that you think is utter trash and not just trash, but like stupid, imbecile, embarrassing trash, does it, would that affect your opinion because the reason i'm asking this is because basically my wife is super woke super progressive she doesn't read ea because she doesn't want to see the shit that i say mm. um, um which is odd because then she knows the shit you say right just by the fact that she knows she doesn't want to read it in terms of tastes she loves all this contemporary pop music that i think is worse than trash but 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 like is seriously like represents regressive like you know um 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 a uh, uh, human development um um i don't it doesn't have any effect though on the fact the, that on our on our personal relationship so i'm just wondering whether you and i are different or whether you're talking about something different that no if that I, was the I, case I, you and i would be on the same page on that's what i guess. i think i think we're different like the, the stuff about having you know i honestly can't think of anybody who likes a kind of um, art that I find just totally terrible. Like, I guess, I guess I don't have the, that strong opinions about art maybe is the thing. And so like, you know, look, like if, if somebody believes in astrology, right? Which I, I find completely worthless evidentially, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. Hmm. Honestly, it doesn't. Um, so it's things if that somebody, you think impact on character. I guess so, moral, I guess so. And it, moral, political. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, if, if you you could like a, a horror movie or something like, you know, there's torture porn. Right. And somebody could plausibly say that affects character. I don't think it does. I, I think when we're looking at fiction, there's generally a completely different attitude we have to it. But like I think with the politics, I'm more worried about the conformism. Like if you have these views and I think that like you have these views just because other people have them and then you get really mad when I challenge them. I guess I do see that as a defect of character, but mainly because of the style of argumentation and how it bespeaks that you haven't done much original thinking. And, and, but usually if they have, they talk differently. Like uh, to just pick an example, 
I suspect that Liam Kofi Bright is incredibly progressive, but like I would be happy to talk to him about that stuff just because of the way he talks and just he seems to know a lot of this stuff uh, from from conservatives. He I don't think he thinks it has any worth at all, but at the same time, I think he knows it. And that to me, like I, I would be happy to talk to him, whereas there are other people, I'm not gonna name names, but there's other people online who I would never want to talk to them because I think it would just be a very uh, stressful exercise just because I feel like they, there would start to be personal accusations lobbed against me. You know, like the fact that you're asking that question says so-and-so about you, right? Or the fact that you have that belief says such and such about you, or you've never experienced this and that. And I just, there's, I just don't, uh, one, once it gets personal, my anxiety gets up and I stop, I start stammering and I can't find it. I just, it just becomes very not worth it to me. <laughs> I think, I, I, Kevin, what's your, what's your take on this issue? See, I think in 2021 and several years before that, we, we, because of social media and the affordances that it gives us to voice everything that we want to voice and, and we do it immediately and et cetera. I think we've really lost the, the collective ability not to give a shit. Um, like there are certain things that I don't have to go into with you. And I, I basically quit social media. And the illustration that I always think about is um, I quit social media. I mean, more or less, I'll go on Facebook occasionally. My rule is I will never post anything. And I will only comment on something if I feel like it's, it's worth my time. If I feel like if I were to spend the next day on this, would this be worth my time? Needless to say, the list is very small. Um, so I quit social media pretty well in the week or so before the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict came down. And a friend of mine who knew that I had kind of stepped down from social media was still on social media that day. And he texted me, he's like, I think you made the right choice because everyone is just losing their minds what do you, how on do you all feel sides more, of the issue. How do you feel more generally about the, what Rob and I were talking about in terms of can your personal relationships and friendships oh. survive Oh, that, that, yeah. Really, um, really strong, not just strong disagreement, but stuff that really makes you furious or sick or whatever. Um, um, because this, because of, of yeah. my story about how I've been trying to scrupulously not have all my friends become yes men, right? I mean, um, um, right. Um, because I've been driven by this fucking algorithm. And I always ask myself, when I was younger, before all yeah. this stuff was here, did I interrogate everybody about their beliefs? Yeah. And if I found ones I didn't like, now we can't be friends anymore. Right, right. right. Yeah, I, no, I, what's I've, your view I've, on this? I've had to kind of work on that. Um, I've had to work on like just this past weekend, my mother and I were talking about politics and we predictably got very angry at each other. And I just said, I'm not, I'm not talking about this. And five minutes later, it's fine. It's just, it's like nothing happened. Right. My wife and I have never really had a lot of political differences. She's not a, she doesn't have very strong political opinions one way or the other. And um, I will say there are certain media that I don't consume in her presence because I don't think that it would broach conversations that, um, but she also knows me well enough to know that I consume media that I disagree with. So a lot Robert, of people don't know that about me. Like some colleagues will, will see, you know, me uh, reading something and assume that, oh, well, you must agree with that. It's like, no, I mean, can we go back to the days where we didn't assume that the only things you could read were the things that you knew in advance you would agree with. It's um, just that Robert, see, Robert, if I'm wrong, please correct me. For Robert, this this diminishes the relationships to have these sorts of sort of constraints, right? 
Whereas I always looked at it as that's what I would expect because people are complicated, right? Yeah. So- well, so, so I had this, well, I have a really interesting experience with my parents. My parents are very Trumpish Republicans at this point, but I know very well from having talked about them with all about all of this stuff that they are not motivated at all by race. It, it's not, so they are very like pro-American trade embargoes, travel embargoes, all this stuff. But when you really pick it, why it, it doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with trade policy that I think is wrong. But, and, and what I'm saying is I, I, because of things like that, I can say, because you have a particular opinion that I might think could impinge on your character, maybe it actually doesn't. Maybe you're not racist because you don't believe that, you know, because you believe in travel restrictions and embargoes. And so I try to always remind myself that like you, you may have positions that I think are indicative, indicative of some sort of character flaw. I'm going to keep that in check because I don't really know that. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. yeah. To me, it's not the positions themselves that are indicative of character flaws. It's the manner in which they're held. That's the main thing. Oh yeah. 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 So, so like, um, you know, and I also think this actually has to, uh, something to do with race. I wonder to what extent, like if there are, let's just say hostile racial attitudes from Republicans to say black people, I wonder how much of that is due to the fact that black people are so democratic. And like if blacks were 50% Republican, let's say, um, what would Republicans attitudes towards black people be? Uh, I, I suspect they like, think about how Republicans respond to like, responded to like Colin Powell or how they respond to Thomas Sowell or Larry Elder. You know, I don't think it's like, oh, I like him, but you know, he's black, so I don't like him as much. If anything, I think the reverse is true. And um, I just wonder how much of these, I'm not gonna say there's no such thing as racism or anything like that. I just wonder how much of it is like, is like a proxy for, oh, this person's probably gonna disagree with me about politics, so I don't like them. I don't know. I, 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 it can't all be. <laughs> I don't even- Which is know odd because is. Uh, there's significant uh, social science data showing that when you poll black people about a whole range of issues, they're more conservative than, it seems like the that thing well, that we call more conservative is primarily than white a, 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 right, a white liberal phenomenon. I think that's right. right? It's, 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 a, it's a phenomenon um, of the educated classes, it seems to me. Um, 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 amongst the minority groups, the most woke ones tend to be in the universities and tend to be in the, you know, the information economy. Um, um, and that actually, you know, brings up something that I, I know that you've both read this, this Freddie DeBoer piece, but it kind of ties two things together. For, I thought Freddie DeBoer's observation that, that our COVID response is basically channeling the preferences and anxieties of the of, of the information classes right um, um, I thought that was a very powerful point and 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 you know the question increasingly politically seems to me to be less between left and right and more between those people who are in the information economy and who are kind of rootless it doesn't matter where they live they have no loyalty to place they have no loyalty to they're just sort of Right. They're ultimate cosmopolitans. They can afford to work at home. They can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They yeah. can afford yeah. to have other people, you know, risk COVID and bring them all their stuff. And so I just wonder whether increasingly that is the schism politically, not all this other stuff. I mean, and that we're still using kind of Cold War categories 
to talk about what now really what now has really become almost entirely a class dispute, right? Well, but yeah. I, I, yeah, go ahead, Robert. Let, let Robert just because yeah. I, I'll just say so. So there was an interview recently between Megan McArdle and Russ Roberts on Econ Talk, mm-hmm. and they brought up this terminology that Roger Scruton coined, which he said there's a battle between the somewheres and the anywheres, right? There are people who are like rooted in a particular place, and they like that it's very important to them that their place mm-hmm. be predictable and something that you know this is part of their identity. And then there's people who they're more part of a of a for lack of a better word, a global class where they can, you know, they're the same kind of in every country. Uh, you know, they have the same kind of elite education. They have the same kind of attitude for the internet, that kind of stuff. And I do think there's that battle. But speaking of Freddie DeBoer, he also said there's another battle going on, not just between the somewheres versus the anywheres, not between the educated and the less educated, but between what you might call the Apollonians and the Dionysians, right? There's basically a bunch of people who, for lack of a better word, kind of believe in the system and want that to maintain and are about order. And there's a bunch of people who want to tear it down and just like want the chaos because they hate these people in charge so much, which is, I think, part of what motivates some of the Republican responses to COVID, right? Just like, I don't want to have anything to do with these official responses. I just want, you know, I just want to let people do what they want. And because I hate these people, I just want to follow my id. And then the other people who, funnily enough, who talk a lot about like, structural racism, white supremacy, and how terrible the system is. But I think on some level are kind of believers in at least get your degree, you know, know the right people, like strive, you know, you pay your dues. And they're kind of Apollonians, a lot of a lot of those people too. So I think there's at least these two ways of cutting the the divide that's going on. But again, this was a more speculative piece by Devor. He for his picture of the Dionysians, he showed the ladies from Red Scare hanging out with Alex Jones which is sort of like a kind of picture that says what this is about. Yeah, I was going to ask, I actually did not read the DeBoer piece. Oh, I'm um, sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's fine. I, I read some of his work. I, I don't read, read all, all of it. Um, I mean, is he, is he conceiving of these as, as fairly set groups? Because it seems like um, who the Apollonians and who the Dionysians are would sort of change with who represents the system in terms of the political yeah. figurehead. I was going right. to ask, Robert, it seems to me that that Apollonian Dionysian does not map on to Cold War left-right categories because no. I can think of both within each of those. So that's a different, that's a, on a different axis, right? A different sure. political axis, right, Robert? I, I would say that the, the Dionysians right now, I think that's more of a cultural axis, right? So there's like, True or false, some people seem to think that a lot of people self-censor and a lot of people are uh, unwilling to talk about certain issues because they're afraid that they might say the wrong thing and get in terrible trouble. And some people love that and they're like all about it and they like want to enforce that orthodoxy. Yes, people should think twice about what they say before they say it because words can be incredibly harmful. And other people are like, I want to say whatever I want. I don't want to be told what to do by like killjoys. And so on this cultural level, I think you see people like Michael Malice, right? Uh, who are like, you know, he's basically just like, a, an, uh, I'm going to say S word poster, because if I say the whole S word, my son will scold me. Um, but there, and, uh, he, he should meet our kid, our kid. We, we curse li- liberally. Um, yeah, home, no, so. he, he, he would, he, his mouth would drop and his <laughs> eyes would widen. Um, so yeah. Lachlan, like, Lachlan would like be like, you, dad, you didn't say fuck. <laughs> yeah no he wouldn't like that at all um yeah so i think there's that cultural divide and, and 
and I think, you know, I'm not going to say all politics is downstream of culture, but I do think there's there's a fair bit of that. And so, yeah, I, you know, just looking at the Republicans, I think I said this in my conversation with David Leach, like I see them not as having very much of a policy agenda at all, but just sort of like reacting against Democrats policy agenda. And like there's not like a big thing they stood for, even build the wall, which seemed very straightforward and easy to tell if it happened or not. They just didn't care after a while. Like they just, you know, they just went on to whatever. And it just seems like the Republican Party is kind of, shh, don't stop interrupting. The Republican Party is kind of Dionysian, uh, more so at least than the Democrats. But yeah, it's not like if they were in power, I don't know, if they were in power, would they try to do something? Like what would they try to do? I don't even know. Well, I live um, in a state where they are in power. What, what do they try to do other than, re, other than resist mandates? Well, they'll mandate against mandates like i mean they they will right I mean, you know like they will put out an order you cannot have a mask mandate or you cannot have a vaccine mandate um, but it seems purely reactive what do they do that's proactive like what's their well, own I, I mean covid mandates are reactive to covid well okay but it's everything's like, reactive in in some sense yeah but like um my you point know, is like, that they're apollonian in the places that they're in charge of right i mean i mean so you know you know our city our city so i live in the third largest city in missouri um if you take the metro area of springfield it's about a half a million people um 300,000 maybe three between 300 and half a million um and um you know there's a very they control the local the local the local uh, politics. We, we don't have a mayor. We have a city manager model. They also uh, control the, the local uh, churches have a very huge uh, power, have a lot of power in this city. Um, this is the headquarters of the Pentecostal movement. So the Assemblies of God headquarters are here. The Southern Baptists are very strongly here. And they have an, a hand in everything that goes on in town from zoning regulations all the way up to, you know, COVID policy. And it's very conservative and very institutional and very authority driven. So, you know, they're weekend Dionysians, man. Um, 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 it's bullshit. I mean, their Dionysianism is, is, is entirely performative, right? I mean, it has no, yeah, know, I don't. And I, and I think that that's going to be probably be true wherever you are, right? Yeah, I don't get the sense. If you're in charge, you're going to be Apollonian. If you're not in charge, you're going to put on this performance that you're such a great rebel and everything, right? Um, when I, when everybody pretty much wants the same, right? Four squares, a fucking roof over your head, you know, not 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 having a war, not having a disease kill half the population. I mean, that's something that everybody wants, right? Well, and even and even between issues, I mean, the, the issue that I'm thinking about is like, you know, the idea of, quote unquote, critical race theory in, in schools. And you could include the 1619 project in that, um, et cetera. Like, so on one hand, you have folks who are of the left, so to speak, who we could say are Dionysian in the sense that they're championing this viewpoint that allegedly wants to destruct the, the deconstruct the existing system and make radical change. So they want to implement that in schools, but schools are part of the system. So you're using the system and establishing relations in the system. So that would make them Apollonian in some sense. On the other hand, you have the quote unquote critics of the critical race theory who rhetoricize a sort of conservatism, which is a very Apollonian conservatism. We need to preserve the system. This is going to disrupt the system. This is very anti-American. We need to preserve 
what's great about America, but then a lot of them are showing a willingness to uh, try to impose bans on critical race theory in schools. I don't know how much more use using the system to, to uh, you know, just adding to the system you can get. So even in that sense, I think that the same one and the same people could be Dionysian in some sense and Apollonian in another. I just don't see that there'd be a, a very neat split between those groups. Also, okay, the so let me, let me push, okay. Well, also the anywheres and the somewheres. I just, I, I'm not sure that I would see an even right left split there. I think that that there's somewhere the 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 somewhere group that you said kind of is is bound to place and things like that. I mean, you have a certain poor group of people who are probably more in the somewheres on both political sides. You have the urban poor who the left really cares about, and you have the the rural poor who the right really cares about. Uh, on the other hand, you have the anywheres on both sides. I think the elites on the political right are probably more representative of the anywhere group and the elites on the political left. I, 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 so I, I don't think that there's as even a split as it sounds like someone like the Boer wants to make it in either category. So let me so let me finesse it and push back a bit. So like, so whether somebody is Dionysian or Apollonian is to some degree a function of where they stand in society, right? You got your people like Hunter S. Thompson who's gonna be Dionysian no matter what, right? And you're gonna have, I don't know, Robespierre, who's gonna be Apollonian no matter what. But, um, but then you oh, that's have- a great, like, That's a great pair right there. Robespierre, <laughs> and, thank you for and that. And they get along famously. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, um, you have, you know, so on the political level, right, I think our, it's probably true that once people get in power, they become more Apollonian and less Dionysian. Although arguably, Trump was a pretty Dionysian, Dionysian politician. Like even when he was in power, it's not clear what he wanted to do. Yeah. Just just talk be talked about. But like, um, but then you know, um, when you're talking about the culture, I do think our culture is pretty progressive. Like at least the most prominent culture institutions are, I'd say, like the New York Times, Harvard University, you know, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. Most of those are pretty progressive, at not least Fox in their News. rhetoric. Not Fox News. All right, most of them. Yeah. yeah. Fox News, I just don't want to give the impression that Fox News has no place in this, right? They're a pretty well-known, powerful media organization themselves. But like, if you are, if you're trying to make your bones in the culture and you're going to be like anti-progressive or, or known as non-progressive, I think there's a lot of like, that's just going to be your permanent place for a while. And so the kind of people who can handle that either are already Dionysians or are going to kind of become Dionysians. I think at some point they're going to have this urge to just want to tear the system down because it just has been like this. It's only been like this for like 10 years, but they're going to feel like it's been like this for such a long time. Right. And so um, so you're going to have a selection effect for the more Dionysian people who are who are, I think, anti-progressive. I mean, because the Apollonian people, I think, respond a lot more to social sanction. Than the Dionysians do. So if you get highly social sanction for posting stuff that's not progressive, um, then you're going to stop posting it if you're not a progressive, but if you're an Apollonian. And so the people who remain will be more Dionysian on average, at least in the culture. But as for the somewheres and anywheres, yeah, that's definitely not purely right-left. Um, I do think that's more like populist versus cosmopolitan. So like, I yeah. think Bernie Sanders types would appeal more to left-wing somewheres. And um, I think maybe Trump types would appeal more to right wing somewheres, but but yeah, there's 
but most elites are of course going to be anywheres. The thing is that if you're, are, if, if right now you're a conservative elite, the people you're gonna have to appeal to are I think more often, at least right now, somewheres people. And so you're gonna at least tailor your rhetoric that way, whether or not you believe it. And those who don't like Jonah Goldberg or Stephen Hayes, they just find themselves basically in the wilderness, you know, talking to like moderates and stuff like that. And so, um, so I, that, that's like a model. Now, how much does this intersect with the right left? I think right now the right is more Dionysian than the left, both politically and culturally. I think they're more somewhere than the left. Um, but of course there's exceptions to both things. Yeah. Now, this actually brings up something that, that I was thinking about, if I can take it here. Um, it seems like in 2020, uh, the, things are fracturing to such a degree that I don't think it's obvious where the power structures are anymore to the degree that every, basically every worldview, every position that someone takes sees itself as opposed to the power structure even though for the right, the power structure is on the left because look like the institutions Robert just talked about. To the left, the power structure is on the right because institutional racism, uh, things like that. So like it gets you into these awkward conversations like the, in the past year, one of the big things was you know Dave Chappelle's special and is he, is he canceled? Can he be canceled? And like to me, it seems it depends on who is doing the canceling. Like he could obviously be canceled from, you know, uh, the left-wing cultural spaces. And if you think that those are the spaces that are in power, then you would think that, yeah, he could be canceled. But the folks on the left are going to say, but the power structures are really in the right-wing spaces. And obviously Chappelle is not being canceled from those spaces. So like, I, I, I don't know if this makes sense, but it just seems like we're even in disagreement at this point culturally on where the power structures are. So that the question of whether Dave Chappelle can be canceled is so much more fucking complicated yeah. because no one can agree on who the power structures are, who are doing the canceling. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah that does. Like Jason Brennan on Daily News, he, he made the claim that universities are fundamentally right-wing institutions. Yeah. And by that, he did not mean that most professors have right-wing political views. Obviously, that's not true. What he meant is if you look at how they actually conduct themselves, right? You have like a bunch of professors who have like these army of indentured graduate students that get very little pay that they want to like send out into the wilderness. Most of them aren't gonna get a job. So the ones that do are the ones who are the most talented anyway. So it's all fine. They wanted to do that. So they don't have to do the scut work of like teaching composition courses, but can have their graduate students do it. They don't want to do the work that you and I have, that all three of us do all the freaking time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, and then they want to pose as they want to pose as Marxists, right? While they're right, exploiting yeah. while they're exploiting all their graduate labor yeah. and deliberately inflating the graduate pool that they know there's no jobs for, just so they can avoid the labor themselves. I mean, I've written yeah. about this. I called out people by name. I mean, I just told yeah. Vel, I just told David Vellum, I just shamed David Vellum all over the internet. Saying, look, man, you want servants so that you can produce 300 more articles that nobody needs, man. Right. Well, I, I said, mean, I only needed 20 articles from JL Austin. I definitely don't need 300 from you. Right. <laughs> I, I just told him that flat out. Right. Um, um, he was um, a teacher of yours, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that, like, I don't love the description of this kind of behavior as, quote, right wing. I don't know what right wing and left wing means. Like, is right, I guess you could say right wing in this sense is hierarchical. 
and left wing is egalitarian. It's sort of corporate and market driven, you know. Um, I mean, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues use the term neoliberal. I mean, come on, Meaning, the, the, the business colleges completely dominate the institutions um, um, and suck up an unbelievable amount of resources. The business professors get paid twice with people in other disciplines. But so, yes, if what you mean by right wing is corporate managerial labor exploiting, et cetera, what right wing used to mean, right, um, mm-hmm. uh, the capitalist class, right, then it's true in that sense. Of course, today, that's why I said I think that our better political um, maps now have have dropped the the Cold War framework because none of this yeah. stuff maps onto it very well, right? It doesn't. Almost every category we've discussed has no particular political valence. You can find Republicans doing it. You can find Democrats doing it. Um, um, also, you know, Robert, something you said about about this thing about uh, maybe Kevin said it also about this thing about you know who's in power. I mean, who could you know? this is why I have no use for abstract privilege talk, right? Because whether you're yeah. privileged is entirely situational, contextual, relevant. And in some ways, I mean, I, there are very few ways in which a white Appalachian guy living in a hut is privileged relative to Oprah Winfrey. Very, very little, right? Maybe in some super, super, you know, far off on the fringe way, you know, if he go, if he was dressed nicely and went to a store in Switzerland, maybe they wouldn't do to him what they did to what they did to Oprah Winfrey when she went to Switzerland once. Mm-hmm. But that to me is, is, is not interesting. Right. I mean, that's not an interesting sense of privilege. Um, and it's for that reason. And so I just wonder whether part of the problem is we're still working with an old political map and we've just had too many realignments since the cold war ended yeah i don't know if you feel the same robert i mean people desperately want to use the right left dichotomy like it's it's very hard not to but the funny thing is is that it's also very hard to get a b just on what it refers to right there's definitely a sense in which you could call capitalism quite left wing in the sense that it constantly uproots traditional ways of doing things it constantly tries to sell people on new ways of life it's sort of like obliterates traditional ways of life because they're, they, they find it harder to sort of make themselves attractive in the short term. So you could do that. And, you know, certainly the, the first advocates of capitalism consider themselves left wing, uh, as Elizabeth Anderson has pointed out. But like, I, like <laughs> if I could know, like what did right wing used to mean? Well, it was like people who were anti-communist in foreign policy, they were uh, socially conservative in um, social policy. And when it came to like domestic policy, they were in favor of tax cuts. They were at least allegedly in favor of cutting government spending. They had the view that like entrepreneurs would be able to like figure things out. And they also thought there'd be a dovetailing between uh, the virtue you needed to be able to thrive in the workplace and leading a socially responsible life. So they thought You're socially describing right wing since Reagan, right? Yeah, and basically the because what you just war. described does George not describe Nixon. Doesn't describe Nixon. And, uh, and, yeah, and Hunter S. Thompson would have described Nixon as very right wing, right? So, so I think that yeah. what you're describing is the post Reagan. Well, I, I think Nixon was socially conservative. I think Nixon was anti communist. I don't think he was very pro market. Like um, he said, we're all Keynesians now. Famously. That's right. That's right. And um, and so and you know Nixon. Nixon was a big fan of using the government to like enforce conservative social values also, in a way also that to create regulatory, a regulatory regime. 
Yeah, sure. Like the EPA was under Nixon yeah. and uh, affirmative action was under Nixon. And uh, he instituted price controls yeah, I mean, on these gas. These are huge things, right? I mean, these are, so, I mean, what you're describing is right, right, rightism since Reagan. Yeah, I'm describing. Why, is, why should that be normative, right? I mean, why should that be? Well, it, it's because it's, it's, it's what happened over the last 40 years. And it's basically at the end of its rope. And now we're going uh, on to a new yeah, right wing yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. Mm. And so like what the right wing thing that happens now, I don't know. It's it's you know, obviously not going to be anti-communist. If anything, conservatives are more pro-Russian than liberals are. And I mean, if if you see if you see Russia as communist, and like it seems that both liberals or progressives, whatever, and conservatives are pretty anti-China right now for mm. different reasons. But that is sort of like the new, just like you know, you had your scoop Jackson Democrats who were against the Soviet Union. I think most progressives are very leery of China for probably different reasons from conservatives, but like, but for, but you know, there's something they both agree on. And if, if I, I would probably say that both are probably too hawkish on China, but like, whatever, I'm no expert on China, but yeah, I don't know. I think we just don't know what right wing and left wing means right now. <laughs> it does seem to be something Trumpy with the right and something sort of like about, you know, race, sex, gender on the left and just how that's going to like, sort of sort itself out i don't know yet yeah kevin do you have any final thought i mean we're over an hour and a half so we should probably wrap up do you have any thoughts on this on realignment and whether the vocabulary and all that sort of stuff mm, i i don't think i have anything meaningful on realignment i i think i agree with everything you're saying i mean as someone who's been primarily libertarian identifying through my career no longer as much so I, I always I always thought that that the attempts of trying to cram positions into right or left didn't make a whole lot of sense. They're just these bundles, these Cold War bundles. I mean, I guess the only other thing I could say is that, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about this with school choice, which is one of the things that is part of my research. And it's like, why is school choice this right wing phenomenon when choice theoretically it, it doesn't it's not really political. It's right. Like you could be pro choice left. Yeah. And in fact, history, historically, political choice has had a, a pretty prominent place in several areas on the left. Um, and really, it, it comes down to, first of all, in the, the, the uh, massive resistance to segregation, the right discovered that pro-choice, school choice be a nifty way to keep a segregated school system without violating the, the new law, right? And then, uh, then there was really the Carter administration, which got the endorsement of the National Educational Association, the teachers union, which really aligned it with a very pro-public school model. Yeah. So the right decided kind of in reaction to, to make that kind of a wedge issue. Um, it's just a way to say that the, the answer to why school choice is a right-wing phenomenon is historical accident. It's just these two historical things. Yeah. Um, there was no reason other than this kind of historical accident why school choice had to be a right-wing phenomenon. In fact, there was always folks on the, on the left uh, Theodore Sizer, um, Coons and Sugarman, uh, who are always advocating for school choice on the left, Stephen Ahrens, because they thought it would be a, a much more racially, a, a way to achieve racial and social integration more than zoning for public schools. So again, it's just to say, I, I agree. I think we're, we're past that point. In terms the same of, could be yeah. said for gun control too. Like yeah, yeah. Oh, in yeah. the 60s, a lot of radical groups were very much against gun control in favor of owning guns. I could certainly see it a, w a way that conservatives would think of guns the same way they think of drugs. 
ficus things that undermine law and order. But you know, that's obviously not how they think about it nowadays. I've made the provocative claim in several areas that I think that if you're looking at an institution that extols the values that conservatives really like, you could probably um, find a lot of common cause with the Black Panther Party, a group that constantly quoted Jefferson, constantly quoted life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, was very fervently pro um, uh, uh, pro gun and and you know pro second amendment was very pro first amendment. Um, I mean, yeah, not in all ways. Obviously, they were Marxists, but yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of affinity there, and um, our our current political divisions don't don't speak to that. But in terms of 2021, I just I guess this is my year of kind of gradually. Um, I don't want to say giving up strong belief, but seeing so much strong belief around me that I feel like the world could do without one more strong believer. <laughs> so I've kind of opted out of a lot of strong belief areas. I haven't given up on strong belief as in principle. I certainly am much more appreciative in my older age of the complexity of these things and, yeah. of, the, and yeah. of the uncertainty of all of the positions for the most part. But I, yeah. what I have just sort of decided is not so much that I'm going to give up on strong belief, but that, that I'm going to give up on trying to convince people, yeah. um, at least directly. Um, and I wrote a lot about that, you know, that I just find myself more and more wanting to write things more that show rather than tell. Mm. Um, 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 but I very much as a personal project, I've set myself upon a kind of a return to normalcy, despite social media. In other words, I'm trying to force social media to conform to how I thought about my relationships beforehand. And so it's sort of like this. If you behave in a way that 35 years ago, I would have punched you in the face for, you get blocked, right? I block a lot of people. Um, you know what I mean? If, 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 if something wouldn't have made me not friends with you 35 years ago, if we were friends, it's not going to make me lose, not be friends with you now. I'm trying to impose sort of on, in my own life, that kind of normalcy. And I, I think I've somewhat succeeded. I mean, I have made a lot of friends on Twitter, people I didn't know mm. who now I will travel to, to go visit. Like, I mean, and part of the way I've done it is by refusing to behave differently than the way I used to behave before this came along. But it does require kind of active reminding yourself, right? And um, and so, but that's that's I haven't really so much gotten rid of strong belief as more I'm choosing to engage with people a little differently, I think, and um, to try to at least insist that my own personal spaces operate according to the way that I have always operated and not under the influence of a very clever company employing a very clever, clever algorithm. I guess that's all I can say. How about you, Robert? What is your final thought for the new year we're going into and the year that's gone? Well, I suppose um, it's a funny thing. I think it's, I become more skeptical of like strong beliefs like Kevin has, but I've also become I guess I found myself losing a lot more respect for people in positions of authority than I used to have. And, you know, it's a sort of thing where like, it used to be that if you said something was reported in the New York Times, I would take it very seriously. Me too. But now it just, it just doesn't matter to me anymore. Like I, my new, my new policy is like, I'm not going to take anything seriously on some new issue until like at least a week has passed when people have, because one of the things that happens to me is when, if I read something that just came out, 
immediately there's a take on, on, on at least two sides. And then once, if you identify with one of those sides and you see that take, you're gonna find yourself becoming emotionally invested in that take. And I don't wanna become emotionally invested in a take if it turns out it's wrong, because then it's harder to give it up. You find yourself mm -hmm. being more of a jackass, right? In terms of that. And so, um, and also, you know, just the other thing, I, I, I think it was Mike Humor who pointed this out, like think of news coverage of something that you know extremely well and read it and then see what you think of the coverage. Chances mm -hmm. are, you're gonna think it misses some incredibly crucial things. But just remember, that's true for all the news coverage. It's not just that way in the area you know, it's the way in every area. And so like my attitude towards just news, especially because of all the pressures they have with the subscriber model they're on and trying to please their base is just like, I don't know, I just don't see it very profitable for me to like follow, as my friend David Leach puts it, court politics. Like it's just, I just, I'm just gonna wait. I'm just gonna try to wait. In fact, I once thought about making a podcast called One Month Later where the whole point of the podcast was just to revisit things, the hottest thing a month ago and see how, how it looks now. And That's how a it really looks good now. idea, Robert. Yeah, well, I might still do it. I might still do it. That might be the podcast I try to use that, that sweet, sweet Templeton money with. If, um, I, could, um, if I could just illustrate, actually, the, uh, I think you made a really good point. Going back real quick to the story about giving up social media around the time of the... Um, the, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, because I, I never got to kind of go where I wanted to go. And it is relevant. I gave it up about a, a social media about a few weeks before. And my friend texted me. He's like, you are absolutely right to do this. And I just went on to see what he was talking about. Everyone's voicing their opinions. And the thing that I thought was everyone is getting so angry about something that in the most literal sense, their opinion does not matter. It affects nothing. What you thought about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict affects nothing. It was up to the jury. There was, there were, there were members of the jury. They decided, why are you all getting so angry with each other about your opinions about a thing that, again, your, your opinion does not affect the outcome of this in any particular way. And I thought, my God, we are so compelled to voice opinions about something that literally our opinion could not matter less towards. Why? I think it just goes to your point of like, you get invested in this thing, but you don't, we don't pause to realize that our opinions on certain things literally just don't matter that much. Yeah. Well, with that wisdom, um, and I think, I think uh, uh, it is wisdom, Robert, um, what you described about waiting. Um, with that, I will, I will bring this to a close because we are getting near two hours. Um, thank you so much. Uh, um and I really enjoy this roundtable thing. I like the th way the three of us go, and I hope we can do more. And uh, I wish you all both the best and your families the best for the next year. I hope it's better than the last one. You too. You I'm too, confident Robert. it will be. <laughs> I appreciate that, Robert. Thank you. All right, my friends, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Ciao.